1: Hello again, fiends, and welcome to a very special episode of Nightmare on Film Street, recorded live from Panic Fest. Woo! I'm Kim. I'm John. And this week, we were joined by Mick Garris to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Sleepwalkers. That's
2: right. We sat down with the horror master himself to talk about the making of one of the greatest cult classics of the 1990s. This movie... Played like fucking gangbusters At Panic Fest
1: It was a packed audience I would say about Maybe almost half of them Watched it for the first time It was so much fun
2: we're also recording this intro live at Panic Fest. There's some construction happening behind us. There's literally a cat in my lap right now. <laughs> uh, if you hear any purring or, or, or saws going on. It's just happening.
1: John. <laughs> yeah.
2: We have been watching a shit ton of amazing indie horror movies here at the festival. Uh, we were planning on talking about a few of them before we got started, but there, we've actually had too many. Like, we were going to do a whole episode on our favorites from the festival. But, you know, in the meantime, you can head over to nofspodcast.com to check out the reviews we've been posting. We've also been putting out a whole lot of photos on social media. We've been hanging out with Uncle Lloyd and Toxie. We've had Joe Bob and Darcy. And, of course, Mick fucking Garrett.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, without further ado, here is our live interview with Mick Garris recorded at Panic Fest. And uh, stick around because there's also a Q&A with some fans.
0: Charles Brady is new in town.
3: You can actually talk to him? Yeah, he's nice. Real nice.
0: The girls all like him. The teachers all respect him. Your teachers in Ohio must have been sorry to lose such a creative young man. The parents all trust him. He's
4: utterly charming.
0: But nobody really knows him like his mother. Be in love with this girl she your You don't know me, Tanya. But I want to. Behind their smile is a secret. Hi. Come
3: in, Tanya. I have something for you.
0: I don't know who you are, but I know you're not who you say you are. Behind the secret is a hunger.
4: Does it have to be her?
0: And behind it all is the imagination of Stephen King. <laughs>
5: amen
3: he was scared of a cat
0: ah! stephen king's sleepwalkers
2: Let's give it up one more time for sleepwalkers, right? Right. Some of the best audience reactions that I've heard in years.
1: All right, so first timers, what did you think? Yeah, awesome. Mick Garris?
0: Thank you.
4: Really, uh, 30 years since this movie came out, and to see this full theater here, and that you stayed all the way through for the Q&A as well, that's, thank you so much. What a, what a great group of people, a great audience.
1: First Stephen King property, written directly for the screen, and your first collaboration with Stephen King, of many. Uh, yes. Can you ta- talk a little bit about how you got involved, how you got the script?
4: Yeah, I had uh, made the timeless classic Critters 2, and and Psycho 4, and a lot of things with numbers in the title, and uh, so because of the themes of Psycho 4, I think, um, which had to do with Mothers and Sons, which was the first part of my motherfucker trilogy... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when are we getting part three of that trilogy, by the way? I'm working on it. Don't tell my mother. But, uh, but um, I, uh, my agent had submitted me to Columbia Studios, and they took a meeting with me. Meeting was great. Everything went terrific, and they said, we're really excited about this. We can tell your passion for Stephen King, your knowledge of his work, we have a meeting to do tomorrow with another director, and his agent is somebody really we're really close to. So it's just one of those meetings, but you know, you've got this job. And then they had that meeting, and they hired him. Oh. So however, the fact that we're here tonight is proof that that didn't last very long. <laughs> that director started rewriting it, and created a planet of sleepwalkers and all kinds of things that had nothing to do with it. So if you're going to do a Stephen King original screenplay for the screen, uh, and it doesn't have Stephen King's name in the title because it's nothing like what he wrote, you're not going to make that movie. So they ended up changing horses. Um, I I was called in to have a lunch meeting with the studio at Columbia, and so I met with the line producer, and I let, met with the studio executive, and we had this lunch, and it went great, and then they said, okay, let's go to your office, and they moved me into my office after lunch, and I had no idea that they were giving me the job that day, but it was the first uh, Stephen King thing that uh, that ever happened. So.
1: so, how how deep into it were you? Like, did, did they... Uh, tease you a little bit on the themes before you had that office or was it a bit of a surprise? I had read
4: the script. Yeah, yeah, I'd read the script and so I knew what that was about and I knew that it was a very different kind of movie <laughs> One that it amazes me now to watch it 30 years later when you're making the movie as I was just telling John and Kitwood, um You're making a movie. You just commit to making the best movie possible and after it's done, you realize, and here 30 years later watching it with the crowd, this is a weird fucking movie. <laughs> and I knew when I was reading it that it was an unusual film, but you know, it was the excitement of getting offered my first and ultimately my last studio movie as a director, um, and working with Stephen King. And so that was thrilling to me. Now, um, so I committed to the best cast I could get, you know, getting Alice Krieger and Machen Amick and Brian Krause and Ron Perlman and, you know, really amazing people. Treating it like a studio film, although the studio treated it like an independent movie. It was, for a studio film, it was very low budget. But, um, but we were committed, and the original studio head, Frank Price, said to us, Columbia Pictures is never going to release... A movie about a boy who has sex with his mother as long as I'm the head of the studio. <laughs> Halfway through shooting, he was fired. Oh. I'll let you think about that. So there wasn't really, there wasn't
2: really any pushback. Uh, well, I mean, it, other than the head of the studio telling you it's not going to happen. But right. I got to imagine when you put Stephen King's name on something. That, yeah, uh, but they
4: kind of ignore you because you're the gutter trash. <laughs> You know, we were the gutter snipes making a horror movie, ew, and uh, they were busy with, well, the three movies that were shooting on the lot at the time were Francis Coppola's Dracula, Steven Spielberg's Hook, and Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. So there's Francis, Stephen, and Mick. (laughs) Doesn't quite ring right but you know those were the ones getting all the attention the the mainstream stuff we were the little movie to make some money and uh, so we were kind of under the radar even though we were shooting on the lot and everything everybody kind of ignored us
2: I mean it works out sometimes I suppose but uh, you know like it's not uncommon to hear that movies go through rewrites uh, was it easy to, like, well, first, I guess, were there many rewrites? And then how hard is it to tell Stephen King that you've got to change what you've written?
4: <laughs> well, when I came in, uh, one of the things was I'm also a writer, so they were getting a writer-director who could handle that. But more importantly, I was more simpatico with what King had in mind. So they didn't even send him the versions that this other director had done. They gave me the script and said, we want you to undo what this other filmmaker had done and so I put it back very very close to what King had done very few changes and then the studio said they would have studio notes that needed to be addressed and I would say to Steve Steve I'd never even met him yet only <laughs> over the phone um, so I would say to him do you want me to handle it need so no let me try it next morning six pages would show up in this ancient device called a fax machine (laughs) and they'd be great and it was really fun stuff and he was so cooperative and such a team player but we never even met until we were on the set of the cameo with him and Clive and Toby so uh, the rewriting, there wasn't a whole lot of it uh, other than rebuilding it in the first place and then King, well one thing that I did, two things I did at the beginning in the titles because nothing is explained. I created the Chillicothe Encyclopedia of Arcane Knowledge, which doesn't really (laughs) exist, 1861 copyright. Um, People think it's a real thing, and I'm delighted by that um, because it's bullshit. And the scene with the sleepwalkers reflected in front of the mirror where you see them as they are copulating and you see the, the real monstrous sleepwalkers in the mirror. I added that as a device to how and why the sucking of the source of the virginal young woman was necessary for them to
1: continue their livelihoods. They're such an interesting uh, creature because they they kind of lend to like a vampire mythos, but they're wholly original. And like you said in the movie, there's still a vagueness to them. Like we don't entirely know their powers, their abilities, their limitations. Like they have invisibility. They have car changing, cool car changing powers. And they can
2: drop needles at like any
4: time they want. Yeah, they got
1: soundtracks. They're so cool. <laughs> Uh, was there ever any talk of like expanding the universe and doing like a prequel or doing, exploring them even more?
4: Not during our process. Later on, uh, Tabitha King, Steve's wife, wrote a treatment for a Sleepwalker sequel years after the fact that involved a girls' um, basketball team. I never read that treatment. I don't know how that would work, but, <laughs> but she did, and nothing ever came of that.
1: Can you just imagine though, like a Teen Wolf Sleepwalkers crossover, like on the on the basketball team, cats versus dogs.
4: Team Sleepwalkers, sleepwalkers yeah.
2: Well, I think we should start that Kickstarter tonight. <laughs> I think we all we all pitch in five bucks. I think that's about half the budget you got for this movie, right? Fair enough. Yeah. But uh, I mean, the special effects in the movie are incredible, like outside of just the practical effects alone, it's also at the forefront of, of computer-generated imagery.
4: It uh, was the second morphing ever done in a movie. Wow. Yeah, wow. The, after T2, yeah. And they were still in production when we were in production. It came out while we were shooting. So uh, they so were tied both. tied for
1: the, first then, tied for first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
4: So how stressful...
2: Well, first off, I want to know how stressful it is to just say action and you burn a stuntman, because that <laughs> looks... It's like one of my favorite like stunts in movies ever, but it looks and incredibly see stressful. And you how big <laughs> his
4: head is? <laughs> That's all the protective padding and everything. When I see that, all I see is, oh, look at his head wrapped up in a giant bag. You know? <laughs> uh, but all stunts are stressful for me. And you are always endangering someone when you know they're good at at handling danger and it's their job and they're prepared for it and there's a whole crew to make sure that everything happens safely but there are accidents and they've happened um and it's it's something that every time i have to do stunts i'm really keyed up until it's done and done successfully there have been accidents when we were doing Desperation, there was an explosion in a mine scene. It was on a stage, but what happened was everybody was in this small set of a mine, a group of miners and everything, and uh, there's a cave-in. So they're running out of the cave during the cave-in, and what happened was they used walnut dust uh, as the dirt that falls because they couldn't use Fuller's Earth because it's been shown to be potentially Um, dangerous dangerous, it's a good word yeah (laughs) but the walnut dust somebody kicked a lamp that was on the floor and it broke and the walnut dust ignited and the whole cave set turned into a fireball and those things happen and you can't predict it that maybe somebody could have predicted uh, who was in physical effects and fire knowledge and all of that stuff But, but those things happen so yeah they're terrifying
1: Wow, I did not know walnut dust was so flammable. Right, learn something
2: <laughs> new every it's day. It's a wood.
4: Yeah, I guess that's true.
2: Now it's it's uh, you know not nearly as stressful because nobody's going to potentially get hurt. But I have to assume that you know shooting a scene like the morphing sequence, uh, especially at a time where you know like now you just point your camera at anything and you can add it in post no problem. Like you're. You know, your grandkids could do it for free if you asked right. really nicely. But, uh, <laughs> On their
4: iPhones. Yeah, yeah.
2: but what, what, what goes into shooting something like that in, 19, in you know, 1992?
4: Well, in 1992, first of all, we also had motion control because you couldn't track digital technology without doing repeated runs. So when a camera makes a move and you're going to do a morph or transformation in that shot, it has to be programmed to move multiple times, once with nothing in front of the camera, once with the background, once with one stage of your creature, and once with another stage of the creature, if not one more. So when they tell you it's going to take four hours to set that up, multiply that by two, and then another four times, and maybe you'll be close to that. It's a very cumbersome really difficult process and combining that with a technology that had not been done before um, it was very very complicated and we were on a very low budget for a studio movie it was 15 million dollars as opposed to dracula being 60 million dollars so although dracula looks like 60 million dollars so yeah you're you're constantly dealing in genre films with effects and stunts, and in this case, animals. Uh, everything that's difficult about making a movie was in this movie, except there were no kids in the movie. Yeah. So uh, that, w- I've had to deal with that on others, where there's effects and kids and animals and stunts. And, uh, and the the car chase sequence was one of those where our, our, um, second unit director who was going to handle that chase scene was Mickey Moore, who was one of the greatest of all. He did all the Indiana Jones movie for Steven Spielberg, and so he signed on, was going to do that car chase and everything, and he had a heart attack. So we had to work with his, his um, cameraman doing all of that, and most of what he shot didn't really move, and that scene needed to be really propulsive. So I'm not an action director but I had to put that hat on and I reshot most of that first unit because it just needed to be a screaming scene and and really move like that. So you just have to roll with the punches as they're presented to you. And that's the job of a director is to have an answer for the 200 questions that come at you every single day as Lloyd Kaufman can attest to
1: and in that and spider <laughs> and in that car sequence like you said with the morph there are so many different iterations of the sleepwalker creature you have kind of a more subtle one that's giving you like um the cowardly lion the <laughs> of Oz. and a baby
4: <laughs> that baby was the special effects supervisor uh his his son his <laughs> two-year-old son. So
1: I, I hope he's watching it now at like 32. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right, immortalized
2: forever in the me. incest movie. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there you go.
4: He must be very proud. So, what's it? What's it like to direct cats? Oh, it was like herding cats. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, fortunately, a lot of that. Well, there were 126 cats in the movie, wow. and wow. a lot of the gang cats. Were shot second unit, like when they're running through the town in the back lot of Warner Brothers. Um, there was second unit, but Sparks the cat. There were Woo! there were nine right. Ca- <laughs> there were nine cats cast to play Clovis. Each of them was a, with a specialty. One would be to be cute and cuddly and sweet. Another one would be to be dynamic and climb into the house. And uh, another one to be mean and hiss and all that sparks did every shot except for two shots so there was one hissing cat the mean cat stop looking at me you fucking cat <laughs> uh, so uh but all the others were sparks and, and so there were seven who were just in their trailer with the teamsters kicking back yeah
1: because sparks was a star
4: sparks may he rest in peace was well it's 30 years later <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You didn't go to his funeral, did you? <laughs> so shut the fuck up.
2: <laughs>
4: Respect.
2: Like, hey, absolutely one of the other the biggest stars in this movie, of course, is, is Alice Krieg, uh, who just delivers like, such an incredible performance in this and, and really uh, elevates the, the monsters in the movie. Uh, it had to be hard to cast that role.
4: It was and it wasn't because I had seen Ghost Story. And Alice Krieger in Ghost Story is magnificent. I mean, she's, there's this intellect about her and she's South African and British having lived in both countries and there's a level of sophistication to her, and yet there's this raw eros about her as well, and her comfort with the sexuality that she played in Ghost Story that played such an important part in this. And she's a Shakespearean actress, has done lots of Shakespeare, and here she is playing Mary Brady and giving it her all and playing it straight. I think that's the strength of a movie, even that has a sense of humor. You don't play the humor, you play the the drama. And she was so good at doing it and she was very much into learning being like a cat and being tactile and rubbing up against Brian and, you know, (laughs) it it was great to watch and and the conversations were all really good because she's a very intelligent woman, very educated and so committed to her craft that she was fearless and I'd met with several other actresses about this, Mimi Rogers and Celia Ward. And I even had a meeting with Bo Derek about playing this part. And that was memorable, if hilarious. (laughs) Uh, But once I thought of Alice Krieger, that's the one who I thought could and should do it, and the fact that we did get her for this was uh, like a birthday party
1: so awesome. And while we're talking about the cast, we have to call out some of the cameos. Was that just serendipitous or like, how did that all happen?
4: The cameos?
1: Yeah. They're
4: friends of mine. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Stephen King, I invited him to play that part. and, And Clive Barker and Toby Hooper had both had paths crossed with Stephen King. Clive Barker's first books of blood that came out in the U.S., his first published books in the U.S., Stephen King gave him a quote saying, I've seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. So they had never met until that day. And Toby Hooper had done The Mangler, and they hadn't met until that day. And and of course, he did Salem's Lot for television. So the idea of bringing them together in one scene was something that, that I just thought was magical. And King was only there for two days that day. And that morning, while eating my morning granola before we started shooting, I broke a tooth and had to go down to emergency dentistry and said, you got to finish quick because Stephen King is going to be." And so we had two hours to shoot that scene. And that one shot, starting with Steve and Toby and going through Clive and taking Steve up to the sheriff, and then Sheriff says, not now, and pushes him away. You could lose that whole shot and not affect the story at all, but I wouldn't have heard you guys going, "Hey, Climb Parker, Toby Hooper, <laughs> is that Stephen King? Is it? So, and the pleasure of opening night on, uh, at the, how, uh, at the um, Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard was listening to those people who had no idea what was coming. Most of you knew what was coming. But to hear people going, first of all, most of them knew Stephen King because he's six foot five and doesn't look like anybody else. (laughs) But Toby Hooper, you'd hear the real ultra fans going, instead of just the Friday night horror movie date night thing, the real fans, the goobble gobble ones of us, (laughs) were going not just, that's Stephen King, but they were hey, Toby Hooper, that's Toby Hooper, that's Clive Barker. And that's a great feeling, you know? It feels inclusive because genre fans want to be a part of the genre, not just to, to passively watch the movies and then move on. But they want to own the movies. They want to embrace the movies. They want the VHS, the Blu-ray, the 4K, you know, every new edition with all the, all the bells and whistles. And it's because it feels personal you know, and, and I'm one of us, you know, I have been all my life.
1: That's so special too, like there's a little moment in that film that's just for us.
4: Yeah, completely, yeah.
2: You know, speaking of embracing, um, you know, usually... <laughs> I usually don't know where you, this is going. <laughs> usually when you make a movie about taboos, 30 years later, they're not really taboos anymore. So <laughs> hats off to you guys for yeah. making something that stood the test of time. I think we, what, we made it like uh, 45 seconds in this movie before the uncomfortable laughter started. <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, What's I'll a, tell you, that opening night... That's exactly what I want to hear about. <laughs> Opening night, 1,200 people in this theater. It's all teenagers and 20-somethings. And it's date night, 1,200 people packed into the Chinese theater. And it's getting closer and closer. And there's uncomf- uncomfortable laughter, like you said. There's discomfort. Wait, th- it, it, that's his mother, right? <laughs> and, and then when he finally it comes to its head, dare I say. Um, and he says, oh, mother and then they kiss. 1,200 people at once going, <laughs> was the greatest feeling ever.
2: I mean, you, you had to know you were, you'd made something special back then, though. And uh, I'm sure, you know, not that you were really looking you know, that far ahead, but you had to know that 30 years later, you know, you're selling out screens at, uh, at you know, the premiere, and you're jam-packing an audience 30 years later in Kansas.
4: Well, I did not know. Nobody <laughs> knew because movies are made for the moment. They're not made for the future. And the fact that there are movies that do have a life beyond the immediacy is pretty special. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to have that with this and with Hocus Pocus and some other things that I've done that that have had a life and in a lot of ways are more popular now. That, I mean, Critters 2 was a total flop. But... <laughs> Every Easter it plays at festivals, it plays in theaters, it plays on TV. I just spent my Easter Saturday two weeks ago in Portland where they had a theater this size, full house with critters too, and it played like this played. And it's uh, an amazing time, 34 years after the fact on that. So the fact that any work of art, we can call this art between us, right? (laughs) (laughs) That, can <laughs> but that can stick around and still entertain an audience at a level that it did when it was brand new is something to embrace and appreciate and you know be grateful for uh, every day. And
2: uh, so we're going to open it up to questions from you guys as well. Um, but, exactly. we,
1: there's a microphone over here on the side if you guys want to line up and you can ask your questions.
2: This always
4: takes a while.
2: Yeah, and and while we're waiting, uh, I I have to assume that trying to get this rated to an R was a bit of a chore, right?
4: Well, it went back to the MPAA five times before it got its R rating. The first time, that scene in front of the mirror was originally intended to be one shot. Starting up on the dresser, going down to see the discarded clothes on the floor, then up to see the feet, and pan up the length of the bodies to see two naked bodies procreating in front of the mirror and then reveal, all in one uncut shot. Well, when you have a young man and his bare buttocks moving up and down in a horror movie, that's an NC-17. You can do that in a mainstream movie, but not in a Stephen King horror movie. So that was something that had to be cut. And thank goodness I had shot coverage, the overhead shot looking down on Alice, and a tighter side two shot going in that made it not sting quite as much. But we couldn't have come out as an R rating uh, by keeping that scene in. But stupid stuff, like when uh, Dan Martin's character gets gut shot after he's had the pencil in his ear,
1: not the pencil, though. The Not pencil. the
4: pencil. <laughs> the pencil made it. But something you've seen in every action movie ever made, seeing the, the squib hits in his stomach, they made us cut that. Wow. And so they went back five times. And the studio was afraid that I wouldn't be able to keep my cool. So they wouldn't let me go to the MPAA. The studio <laughs> sent a representative, and they gave up too easy. You know?
1: <laughs> and clearly they didn't know you at all. <laughs> yeah,
2: clearly. you're like the the chillest person that I've ever met in my entire life. They well, should have
4: said something.
2: <laughs>
6: so. So Speaking
1: of that uh, that scene the the copulation scene. Yes. Am I correct in remembering that that mirror in the room isn't actually a mirror?
4: It's not a mirror. What was happening was we'd built a reverse room on the other side of the wall and it was an opening there may have been glass there I don't remember just so there'd be a kick of light reflection or something but the two people in the costumes had a tiny TV monitor they were looking at to replicate the motion
1: (laughs) in a monster version
4: (laughs) the monster version yeah did
5: we have any questions Uh, yeah we have a couple but I'm gonna go first because I'm selfish like that
1: (laughs) he
4: owns the theater it's
0: yeah I could
5: do this well, first of all, because I, I haven't heard it enough, and uh, Mick's only here for another, like, 24 hours. 30 years, Mick fucking get, well, first of all, the master of horror, Mick Garris. One more time for him, come on. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mick. You have a great podcast, and if you didn't know, Mick has one of my favorite podcasts. It releases every week, he do, or oh, about every week. He does AMAs. It's every week. Yeah. yeah, he does interviews with directors. He's an incredible interviewer, um, but he drops nuggets about his own movies, and he's done a couple recently, and uh, semi-recently uh, in the last maybe year or so. You briefly mentioned the proposed sequel to Sleepwalkers. Can you talk about this a little bit more so everyone else can
4: hear? Well, before you came back in, we did talk. Oh, shit! Fuck!
5: (laughs) Oh, well, can you just say it again for me, please? All right. Well, never mind. Good night, everybody. I've been here all day. (laughs) Thanks, John. Did you ask this question?
2: Oh, he took that one himself. Okay. All right.
5: I took it on. What about the uh, prequel? uh, The prequel? There could be a good prequel for this.
4: It's in your hands.
5: No, thank you. <laughs> I, I'm doing the Been remake of Surf 2. Uh, all right, first question Surf 3, maybe. Yeah. The beginning of the trilogy. <laughs> there we go,
2: the prequel to uh, Sleepwalkers next year at Panic Fest, baby. Come on, let's go. <laughs> um, you guys already kind of touched base on this a little bit earlier. First of all, thank you for coming out and celebrating 10 years of Panic Fest right here. Uh-oh.
4: A total yeah. pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for It's awesome me.
2: having you. So, you like I said, you touched base a little bit on this, but what did it take to take an original Stephen King story and actually put it to film? And what's it like being a cat herder now? I mean, (laughs) jeez.
4: Well, I was allergic to cats before this started, and Machen Amick was allergic to cats, but never told me, despite having to hug Clovis and do all that. (laughs) Um, But to... Be able to work with something that was written by Stephen King was, first of all, the biggest privilege I feel a filmmaker can have. You know, I'd worked with Steven Spielberg on Amazing Stories, that was my beginning, and I'd worked with some really wonderful people. Martin Scorsese directed one of my scripts, and and, uh, Bob Zemeckis directed one of my scripts, Joe Dante did, so that was amazing. But Stephen King is the man behind the curtain, and to be able to do something original, where there were no expectations helped a lot. You know, doing the Shining miniseries um, in the wake of there having been a Stanley Kubrick, Jack Nicholson Shining was something different because even though I didn't feel it at the time, there was there were people making it a competition. So there were expectations, first of all, because there was a book. Secondly, there'd been a, a, a movie before. Same with The Stand, same with Desperation, same with all the other... Stephen King projects I've I've done, this was the only one that had no precedent, no literary precedent. So those responsibilities fell really hard on me because I knew no one who wasn't really a fan of the genre would give it the love and attention that I felt it deserved, the respect that I felt it deserved. And I really wanted to do this out of respect and love for his work. And then during the course of this, we started a friendship that really bloomed when we did the stand afterwards. And it's why he offered me the stand, because of being so happy with how Sleepwalkers was done. And, you know, so much of it was in the script. But uh, he gave me my head to just flourish, let it flourish and grow and bloom in a way that felt personal to me, too. And you did a damn good job. I you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks for buying a ticket.
0: <laughs> so I have a, whoa. so okay. I have a really quick story and a really quick question. Um, when I was young, there was a Showtime free weekend and I put one of those six hour videotapes in and I recorded it and it became my favorite tape I've ever owned and to the point where it broke. It had UHF, No Holds Barred and Critters 2. Uh. So <laughs> on behalf of all the crite kids out there, I just want to tell you thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And so my question is, do you have a particular film of yours that you are especially proud of? Do you have a favorite one of your projects?
4: You know, if you can't be proud of everything you've done, then you're a hack. But if you are satisfied with everything you've done, you're also a hack. Um, (laughs) But, you know, for a long time, I thought The Shining was, it certainly had the best budget and the most... Uh, it the easiest production and allowed me to do as much cinematic work as I could as a filmmaker um, but it dated a little bit you know I just watched it last week for the first time in 10 or 15 years my wife wanted to take a look at it uh, again and we did and it was like well I can feel the date on this whereas the stand reached everybody it's the the, the most successful miniseries in history and um, the, see, <laughs> the script was amazing the book was amazing and CBS Paramount just did a, a Blu-ray last year that they went back to the negative and it looks and sounds better than it ever has but the most personal thing I've ever done is a film that probably most of you haven't seen called Riding the Bullet it's based on a Stephen King story um, it was very inexpensive but it was, his story was 30 pages long And I set it in 1969 and made it something really personal um, in a lot of ways. I had lost my brother and my father and my mother shortly before making it. And it's all about loss. And it's all about personal loss. And it happens to someone, uh, the character I turned into an art student who specializes in grotesque horror art and calls himself the Prince of Darkness, and the glamour of death is not so strong when it happens to you. When, when death and pain and loss are personal, it becomes a deeper subject than just something superficial as so many horror movies are. And so it was not the most commercial film. It only came out in three cities and you know it did not perform at the box office at all, but it's something I'm really proud of having done on a very tight budget.
1: Side note, I think, John, isn't that one of your absolute favorite Stephen King adaptations? Oh, hell yeah. And it's <laughs> readily oh, available
2: streaming, so you should all check it out when you have some free time.
4: Thank you. <laughs> Hello, Mick. Hello.
5: <laughs> so, I, was, I had heard of Sleepwalkers, but I had not really seen it all the way through. Like, it's on TV all the time, and you see it here and there, and I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> Whenever, especially come to like one of the incest scenes. For whatever reason, this has like a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I want to know, why is that oh. bullshit to you?
4: <laughs> you know, Rotten Tomatoes is not how I judge my movie viewing. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> It's fair enough, you know, y- you, can't, you can't tell who's gonna like what or why, um, and you can't take it personally either. You just have to make the best work that you can make, and then it's up to the audience. So this is a movie that was successful theatrically, um, and the reviews at that time were terrible, but mainstream critics, there's nothing for them here. Uh, They they don't understand the genre, and that's fine with me. It wasn't made for them. It was made for us, you know?
1: I find uh, a lot of times as a horror fan, when you see that little splattered tomato, it's a sell. Yeah.
4: yeah. Sometimes (laughs) they're right, though. They're shitty horror movies, too. (laughs) (laughs) But whether I made them is up to you, not to me. (laughs) So you mentioned
5: earlier that you were, when you started the movie, you were allergic to cats. Was there any other cat-related
4: accidents or something that happened during the production that wasn't planned or was just like oh, well, now this is happening because of cats. You know, it was amazing. Those cats were so well-trained, and partially because when you see 126 cats in front of the house, they're all wearing, they were trained to wear little harnesses that were nailed into the lawn. (laughs) So they loved it, they got treats and everything, but they were very well-behaved for a reason. (laughs) It's method acting for cats. But the fact is, when they were acting singly or en masse, they were terrific. They're running through the town. There are still their progeny around the uh, 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 Warner Brothers studios where we shot there. There there are feral sleepwalkers progeny everywhere on that lot (laughs) to this day.
1: So do a Warner Brothers tour next time you're in LA, and you can see the sleepwalker grandchildren.
4: Yeah. Not Clovis. Oh, Nick. Clovis went out a bachelor? 30 fucking years, get over it I mean,
2: like, I will say I'm so, We're going to get to your question in just a second Like, uh, you know, you're really lucky This isn't a movie about dogs Because, you know, you can do whatever you You know, you can't kill a dog on screen But, you know, in Sleepwalkers We're stringing up cats, we're gutting them They're hanging out in the front But the lawn. cat is the hero
4: <laughs> Clovis the attack cat, for God's sake Come on
1: that police officer all round. Yes,
4: and, and I must say that I have a real problem with movies. These days, every horror movie introduces an animal that you want to love that they kill, and I'm, I'm not on board that train. So I may have had shredded cats at the opening of my movie and snapped their backs and all of that, but I'm a changed man. <laughs> So you've mentioned budget a couple times. Is there anything specific you might have done differently if they gave you, like, Francis Ford Coppola's budget for Dracula for Sleepwalkers here? I don't think this movie should have had that kind of budget. <laughs> um, seriously, because then there would be all these expectations and compromises that come with that, unless you're Francis Ford Coppola or Steven Spielberg in 1992. Um, yeah, it would have been nice to have more time. I had a line producer who was a real whipcracker, who was constantly, he was very kind of old, real rough old New York kind of taskmaster going, Hey, you go over, we're going to pull the plug at 2 p.m., you know. <laughs> and he threatened that all the time. And then when I finished, he told me I was $300,000 under budget. <laughs> well, fuck you. <laughs> That was at least, that was a week's worth of shooting I could have had. And when you start every day walking and you end every day sprinting, and just because the day is only so long and a day is 12 hours plus, and if you had another week, there would have been so much more finesse put into so many things, wouldn't have been rushed. But I can't gripe about what could have been I can only appreciate the opportunity I had to make what we made. You always get a set of parameters. you always want more than you get, but there's a set of parameters, and that 's the job is to do it well and make it as as best you can and get everybody involved to feel pride in what they 're doing and be excited and enthusiastic about what they 're doing and that 's much more important than any budget. you know if they had told me I had six million dollars to make this movie. Somehow I'd have found a way to do it independently, maybe not uh, uh, at a studio. But you find a way. This cost 15, so you know, for a studio movie at that time in particular, that, that, that's pretty low.
5: I don't really have a question, Mick, but I want to say something in front of everybody here. I want to say thank you uh. because of all the inspiration you've given so many people like myself. One of my biggest thrills in the world was being at Dark Delicacies that day, and you came up with Rolf Knafsky, one of my buddies. Yeah. And you said, hey, Todd, how's it going? I about fell over. Like, <laughs> Mick Garris just said hi to me. So uh-huh. I just want to tell you that your work here and all the work you've done has been so inspirational for so many of us. Like the spinning camera, the techniques that you used, um, we all tried to do that. It never looked like as good <laughs> as yours, of course, because we did it with $1.25. Yeah,
4: uh, well, you know that spinning camera that's coming down? That was a camera on a rope that I ran it in reverse and pulled it up and the line producer I was talking about was like yeah but it's going to spin around and do shit you know and I said exactly and wow it, that's so crazy so it that's, was done for 10 cents that's what we did on one of our
5: films called Clownado we did that same thing that you just mentioned with the rope but I want to thank you from deep in my heart for all the inspiration all the kind words you've given me over the years and well, for being awesome. awesome, thank you.
4: Thank you, Todd, and I only wish you the best of luck with everything. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we have time for three more
2: questions. What do you, you guys got? Gotta
1: well, be good.
4: first and foremost, <laughs> thank you for bringing this movie to Panic Fest. This was awesome. <laughs> thank um, you. But second of all, if there was a Stephen King in the audience, would you take a picture in front of this entire audience and say Sleepwalkers rules with him? Of course. <laughs> I have very oh, good uh, news Stephen for King. you. Yes. You're
2: going to have to take that driver's license out. We need proof. I <laughs> believe I've seen it. I've seen it.
1: <laughs> Bonafide,
2: genuine Stephen King right here.
1: Yes.
4: Let's do
1: it. Smile, everyone. <laughs>
2: Stephen, give it up for Stephen King, everybody. Yeah. And where's
4: Clive Barker? Toby Hooper?
3: John Landis? Hi. Hi, Meg. Hi. First of all, this is awesome. I've never been to the Panic Fest, so this is the first time I've ever come. So this was the most amazing thing that I have been uh, to all year. Yeah, I just want to put that out there. Woo. Panic
4: Thank Fest. you. It's my first time too. <laughs> and, so and we're you, both busting that Panic
3: right Fest there. cherry. Yeah. <laughs> so. All these movies that you have had your hand in producing have shaped my childhood. So being in a room with seven siblings and having nothing but uh, like Stephen King movies to watch has been my life as a child. Awesome. <laughs> my favorite movie was Cat's Eye. Has anybody seen Cat's oh, Eye? Oh yeah. Cat's Eye was my favorite movie. So watching this one, Sleepwalkers, with having the cat in it, was, was Cat's Eye an inspiration to making Sleepwalkers? No, this was
4: head? self-contained. This was just an idea that King had come up with, you know, cat's eye. What year was cat's eye? 85. <laughs> 85. <laughs> okay, I'm thank here. you. i did.
3: cat eye right? expert. I'm
4: <laughs> so, yeah, that's seven years earlier. So uh, Steve has often written about cats, usually not in a positive light. <laughs> He's more of a dog guy. Um, he has a dog. He doesn't, he, so long as I've known him, he's never owned a cat. Um, so I don't know exactly where that came from in Cat's Eye, but uh, maybe it was an inspiration or maybe he's allergic. I don't know. He's allergic.
3: <laughs> so if there was any special effect that you could have added to this movie, Sleepwalkers, that didn't get added, what would it have been? Well, it would have been
4: more of the morphing effects. We had a very limited number that we could do. At that time, they were hugely expensive. And because of the time-consuming element of moving the camera, you need that veracity when... You can't just lock down a shot and then do the morph in it when everything else in the movie is moving. And Mm -hmm. there's a sense of fluidity and mobility to it. And to have those endless, painful motion control shots. I just wish we could have done more of that movement with the morphing and all. And also in the practical effects, the sleepwalker's final stage head is so big. (laughs) And that's (laughs) because there's machines in there that open the eyes and and make the, the... the mouth work and all of that stuff is mechanical. And I wish we could have had, maybe we could have had pinhead players underneath, you know, the (laughs) (laughs) tiny headed people so we could fit the (laughs) the remote control at motors.
3: (laughs) That is awesome. Thank you, it's a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for this and everything. Thank
4: you, great to meet you, thanks.
3: Well, on behalf
1: of Panic Fest, thank you so much, Mick Garris, for joining us for this anniversary screening and thank the you. Q&A and letting us know all the insights into Clovis and the granddaughter cats <laughs> at the Warner Brothers Studios.
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh, and as Adam mentioned, you know, please check out uh, Mick Garris' podcast, Postmortem. Uh, he is, yeah, right? I'm sure you're already subscribed. Yeah. We've if-
4: had over 100 guests so far. Every other week, we have an interview with a guest, and the alternating weeks we do uh, AMA, which is Ask Mick Anything, where we answer questions from the audience. So, But we've had Stephen King, we've had Guillermo del Toro, we've had Clive Barker, we've had so many people on over 100 interviews, and uh, we're still doing new ones. We're in our sixth season now, so all of them are available. Um, so thank you. And the two and,
2: most recent episodes are sleepwalkers-related, so if you need more sleepwalkers, that's where to that's head. That's right. The current
4: episode... Uh, Machen Amick and Brian Krause and I talk about the 30th anniversary mm-hmm. of the show
1: and not nearly as cool we're Nightmare on Film Street we're also
4: a podcast Nightmare on Film Street <laughs> in the house
2: well come uh, on everybody give it up one more time for Mick Garrison and Sleepwalkers we're gonna we'd, we'd like to take a photo with you all before everybody leaves if you could all hang around for just a quick second
5: Alright everybody on the count of three, let's say Meow. One, two, three, meow. Thank you all so much. Thanks, Mick Garris. Thanks, Nightmare on Film Street. Thank you all for coming and celebrating this terrific film.
1: Thank you so much to Mick Garris and Panic Fest for having us, for answering our questions, and for playing. A amazing film in front of a packed house It was the first time we saw it on a big screen And it was so fun
2: Yeah, I feel like I've watched the movie For the first time like, I think seeing Sleepwalkers with an audience is a completely different experience than watching it at home. You know, whether or not you've got cool friends that like to have a few beers and watch cat monster movies.
1: It really spotlighted how much humor is in Sleepwalkers. Yeah,
2: crazy funny.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't realized just how funny it is because it's played so seriously. And it's, it's a very serious film, but it does have some humor. And it was so fun to laugh along with an audience.
2: Yeah, so thanks again to McGarris, to PanicFest, and thank you very much for listening. Let us know what you thought of Sleepwalkers. Hit us up on Twitter at NOFSPodcast.com, in the Nightmare on Film Street Discord at NOFSPodcast.com slash Discord. We've got our own little Twitter community happening right now as well. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Just search for Nightmare on Film Street. I'm sure you will find
1: us. And if you need even more Nightmare on Film Street content, consider joining our Fiend Club on Patreon. There's tons of bonus stuff there. Watch parties and extra episodes sorry i'm really distracted i'm petting a cat right now and he's so cute uh, oh and you know <laughs> hey
2: thank you so much to everybody that came up and and said that they love the podcast or discovered the podcast because of panic fest it was so great to just hang out and talk movies uh with our fellow fiends it's been a fucking blast uh but until next time where
1: we'll have uh, our highlights from the festival some of our favorite finds i'm kim
2: <laughs> i'm john
1: stay, stay creepy. creepy. It
0: appears you made it out alive, but we'll get you next time. Help us to grow the horde. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. More terror can be found lurking on our website, nofspodcast.com. Until next time, stay creepy, fiends. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters, because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.